Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Greetings and welcome to a new episode of Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. A few weeks back, I sat out an APB on our Twitter handle, Fuckboys of Lit. I asked what middle grade or young adult fiction would be ripe for the skewering. It was mostly a question out of necessity because I was running out of time to read full length romantic era epics and was hoping a few text suggestions would be quick and easy reads. I wasn't disappointed. It was the suggestion that led to my episode Tuck Everlasting with Michelle Athey and today's show too. It turns out one book that stuck in the craw of many readers was a separate piece by John Knowles. It's a classic tale of prep school boys and the ties that bind them. It's bizarre, to say the least, and tackles any number of toxically masculine problems that plague our society still 60 years after it was published and 70 years after it was set. With me today is filmmaker and critic Danny Bowes. How the hell are you? I'm great, and I wish I could say the same about a separate piece. Yeah. <laughs> this book this book is awful it really is i mean and it was because like i it was assigned reading when i was in seventh grade in you know like in a new york city public school yeah which was probably like the least appropriate or like least likely audience for it to really catch yeah. hold considering it's a book that's set at exeter uh-huh it's set in like you know? hoity-toity new hampshire prep yeah. schools it's this precious, like, like cloyingly anglophilic kind of thing. Yeah, and this classroom full of Brooklyn junior high school kids is reading this going, what the <laughs> fuck is this? You know, what... You're like, what the hell is this? Like, what I, the hell is I this mean, story? Or it's like, you know, these, these kids who are just like, oh, I was looking forward to a life of... Uh, being married off to an aristocratic woman and being installed in industry with a sinecure <laughs> and not having to worry anything about life. Oh, World War II came along and it spoiled all the exactly. it's like, <laughs> But it's going to be like, where I prove I'm a man. So it's like, know, it's like one or the cool. other. Yeah, in that very kind of like English ruling class way, it's like, oh, there's a war on. I'm going to go and cook myself in glory. Yes. At some point, the narrator even says in this book, basically, like, we all know we're going to be officers because we're like, you know, upper, upper crust kids. So, you know, it's fine. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you talk to West Point graduates and they're just like, we're slightly different. And you're like, you're right, because... You know, you had the money and the prestige to go to West Point. Well, that's actually an interesting. This is a completely irrelevant sidebar, completely. but I'll be as concise as possible with it. When, when I was when I was in college, we threw this really big party, and this was up in the Hudson Valley, upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So, like all of the uh, like surrounding colleges came to this party because it was like just the most lit party in that <laughs> entire geographical region. So, um, and there was like word that there were going to be some West Point kids there and everybody, cause this was at, this was at Bard, which 
is like very like you know anti-militaristic and very yeah like, it's you know, the polar opposite culture <laughs> yeah yeah so we're like what the fuck are we gonna do with west point guys they were actually the best behaved people there and they were actually <laughs> helping us enforce order when the catholic frat guys from marist were like causing shit oh, and God. harassing people <laughs> the west point guys were sober and respectful and they were like oh we gotta get out of us they're disrespectful you know? <laughs> that's and, amazing and the west point guys actually really came through and the bar kids were like fuck we have to not be anti-militaristic for, yeah well, exactly you know, okay but you know but, but it was like at least until we scrub all the, the vomit moments. off the floor we have to not be against west point kids yeah 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 but anyway, so it was, you're talking about West Point, and it's not like I'm just like, well, Emily, you need to respect the military. No, I'm no. Just like, no, no, no. But it was just that was just that one uh, funny thing. But yeah, these. But it's a difference between the people who go there and the kind of people who go to these like you know elite prep schools who are just like, well, yes, of course, I'm going to be in the in the officer corps because father will get me the you know. Yes, exactly. The, Mommy and daddy, when they say yeah. it through like clenched teeth. Yeah, like everybody with their George Plimpton accents and shit, you know, and it's just like, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm from, I grew up in Connecticut, but I'm I'm not from this Connecticut, you know what I mean? Like, there is a... There, there, are, there are two Connecticut. Yeah, yes. there's different <laughs> echelons of Connecticut, and like, obviously I ran into these people, you know, the people who like, without irony or without embarrassment will tell you they went to Miss Porter's, and you're just like, ooh, you don't know you should feel uh, weird about that. Like, just so you... <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, oh, my eyes started involuntarily twitching. Yeah, exactly. Just right here. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm yeah. the help. It's fine. You don't have a problem speaking to me this way. Um, but th <sighs> this book is so off-putting. And I can't imagine... There's just not a large enough population of people in the United States who experienced this life that you can imagine that this is like required reading for kids all over the country why I, I, like, yeah and it's weird that this is considered well, like a default book well because the thing is is that you know one doesn't necessarily have to emotionally identify with a book in order to get you know like the literary artistic historical True. whatever merit from it but there has to be something there other than that like it has to have some sort of like, you need to get something from understanding the work and the world that it's set in for it because, yeah. like, and the that... problem with this is that it's the whining of the entitled aristocracy. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not even particularly an interesting glimpse into that world. No, not at because all. Because it's just the narrator sighing over himself and sighing over his school and you know like sighing over oh my my best friend my best chum there is no you know like there, there's nothing queer yeah. about this at all we're just best chum <laughs> okay just, we are gonna get to that you know, too we are gonna get to that because there is some interesting shit there but yeah it's just like all it is is just like entitled whining and sighing yes so for like, like 200 pages and the basic plot, I'm mm. just going to interject really quickly, just in case you haven't read this, right. which I actually hadn't read it before. I thought I had, but I hadn't. 
and that's going to be another thing I'm going to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about rather. The plot of a separate piece is like completely bizarre. It's they're at a summer session at Exeter, haven't graduated high school yet. The main character is this kid named Gene, who is described in the back blurb as like a you know this asocial kid, which he's not really in the book. Uh, like intellectual, and then he meets this kid named Finney as his roommate, and Finney starts a secret club amongst the boys at Exeter over summer. They start jumping out of a tree. This is a huge plot point. They start jumping out of a tree into a river and getting into all these shenanigans. It is incredibly romantic. We'll do that with a wink wink and a nudge nudge. And then at some point, we're just going to spoil the book for you. It's over 50 years old. Finney falls out of the tree, breaks his leg and dies. That's the whole book. And when you put it like that, it just... <laughs> I know, I know. At some point, another kid kind of leaves the school. He signs up for the, like, the... the what like the biathlon essentially we're going to ski through the woods in europe and shoot nazis but he has a complete and total mental breakdown and he comes back into the book for a little while and it's incredibly weird and right. doesn't really correlate to anything else aside from the fact that it's like a 17 year old finally realizing that war is hell and that's really about it and like that's it that's the whole kit and caboodle yeah, there's this whole specter hanging over the whole thing where World War II has broken out and they know that eventually they're all going to be like, you know, drafted into uh, in, in service and have to go to war. And the 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 title, a separate piece refers to like this, like whimsical just kind of ridiculous uh, bullshit that Phineas uh, pulls to kind of like mind fuck himself out of yes. the realization that he's not going to get to go to war and be glorious. Yes. Um, and, you know, so he uh, starts, you know, is like, well, I declare a separate peace in, and I'm going to create my fantasy world where I just deny reality and all of that, which is like, you know, all of this, you know, the fact that it's kind of like, you know, plot light and everything and it's mildly <laughs> insufferable, all of it. Only mildly. <laughs> but <laughs> but the thing the thing that would redeem it all is if there was like if it if it was legitimately superior literary craft, you could at least have that argument. And because, I mean, that crops up a lot. Yeah. Especially like older books that become problematic by modern standards. And you oh. can be, it's like, all right, well, all of that is true, but this is still, you can still glean stuff from this in terms of literary craft. Right. This Sometimes book great books does happen not have when nothing happens. Yeah, exactly. Oh, hell yeah. But this book does not have that exception because it's just, it's written in this cloyingly precious just anemic, neurasthenic, fucking anglophile horseshit. There's just globs of it, like treckle, just like, <laughs> it, it, you know, just like oozing along in the pages. It's just this guy it's, who's like, oh, I wasn't able to be an aristocrat. I've got to worry about shit. <laughs> the real world exists. And it's like, 
he's the most overbearing and irritating narrator I can think of in all of literature that I have ever read in my entire life. It's the most Republican fantasy of what they thought mid-century life is and was. Like at some point he goes off on this this manly expedition where he, he feels like he's finally gotten in tune with his like body because he shoveled snow for a little while yeah. in order to dig out the railroad that got snowed in. And Gene, who's the main character, is just like, I was a working man covered in filth. He spent 24 hours shoveling snow. And that oh, was- Oh, I know. And, and that was Mr. his- Mr. Like, yes, exactly. And that's what he knows like the working world was. Oh, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's infuriating. Oh, yeah. And it, the fact that one of the characters in the book was based on Gore Vidal, who mm-hmm. was a school chum of, of Knowles's, and you're mentioning the, you know, the Republican fantasy of the Lost World, that kind of casts Gene as William F. Buckley in it. Yes. I think yeah. that's a really fair way to, to you know, this. Just these drawling faux aristocrats who are just like, oh, yes, I know all about the common man because I shoveled snow once. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, like, the Ugh. faux aristocracy is a really good point to point out. It's like, it, this is happening in the 1940s, so it's just before... It's post-Industrial Revolution, so obviously you don't quite have the same only Carnegie's and, you know... Uh, ultra wealthy people are not going to these schools. You do have sort of second generation wealthy people who are going to these sorts of private schools. So they're starting to feel almost like they're getting too big for their britches. You know, like I could be important because I'm just old money enough to be considered mm. or to be allowed in the private club. And that's how this entire book reads to me is that it's it's a couple of boys who are trying desperately to like elbow their way surreptitiously into a club that they weren't allowed in before. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And um, the thing that, that even with all of that obnoxiousness and entitlement and aristocracy, I mean, I, I know, you know, putting all this aside is, you know, hurting yeah. but I still feel like a lot of it could have been forgiven if the character of Phineas was the least bit charismatic at all. Yeah. He's just a brat. Yeah, he's just obnoxious. Because it's a similar imbalance to one that, you know, uh, in, you know, Kerouac's on the road. Mm -hmm. The first person narrator is kind of like a non-entity, you know, who's basically there to bask in the reflected glory of Dean. Moriarty exactly you know but the thing about you know I mean on the road you know it's like I'm not 14 anymore so I don't think it's the most unimpeachable work of American <laughs> literature but um there is still something to the character of Dean Moriarty I mean like he's a bit of a shit but he's got charisma yeah and they are doing something that's unusual that most people will never do in their yeah. lives you know most people yeah, so will I mean, not you the book to shreds. yeah you can tear the book to shreds all you like. I mean, and it, it, that would be and another you know, good episode for <laughs> Fuckboys of Lit. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You were way ahead of me on that. Yeah. Um, but, like, at least there's something to Dean Moriarty. Phineas is just a fucking brat. He is. There's no searching. Like, Dean always has this this undercurrent of, like, searching for truth or at least very much, like, searching to get laid, which is, like, enough mm. of a motivator for people. But Phineas has no... 
he has no he doesn't take credit for the the amazing things that he does like at one point they talk about how he set a new swimming record and that it, it was unofficial and he refuses to tell anybody about it so he's not even searching for like personal glory and that's painted as mm. noble but more than anything it's just fucking annoying there's no motivating yeah. force behind this kid it's like it feels like sociopathic that there's nothing behind him yeah because it's like when you were talking about how little happens in the book i mean it really it, it sounds like an exaggeration nothing fucking happens he breaks his leg mm -hmm. he plays make-believe for 180 pages and then he throws himself down a flight of stairs because he realizes that gene you know shook like, the tree to make him fall out of yeah. the tree which is like a normal you know, thing for kids to do like sometimes you just don't correlate cause and effect when you're that age so they're both standing yeah. up on this tree branch about ready to jump into a river which has been their game all summer gene shakes the tree branch because he thinks it would be like be kind of playful and also because he kind of hates his best friend his friend falls out of the tree breaks his leg that's the end yeah and it's like the the degree to which gene ever grapples with the guilt over that is like i think adds up to a total of about a paragraph over the course of the whole book. yeah just about and he's and he's only really concerned with his guilt over the thing because he doesn't want phineas to find out about it but then when phineas does he doesn't really seem to give a shit yeah but then he kills himself when the gore vidal uh character uh puts gene on track which I, just like not to derail my own train of thought Go there, for but it. the bit when brinker brinker hadley's the character the name yes. of the book who's yeah um I, that was for the listeners not for okay uh, <laughs> not for <laughs> so, my edification uh, yeah no i'm not going on your podcast demands but no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there's this thing where it's like the book is just sort of like schlumping along because there's no forward narrative motion yeah. in it and then out of nowhere the brinker character um decides to put gene on trial yeah like a kangaroo court because, of yeah high schoolers he's got it in his head that gene shook the branch to knock phineas out of the tree so he's going to invite all of the boys at the school to this yeah kangaroo court kind of thing and he's like doing this very, uh, and it's out of nowhere. It's motivated by nothing. It's yeah, a and it doesn't matter. Like they're about to graduate. Yeah. It sincerely doesn't matter. Yeah, and it's one of the most blatant things that because you know you hear all the time about you know it's like oh you know writer contrivance or whatever like mm -hmm. some things contrived. This is the er <laughs> contrivance. It kind of is. There's no motivation for Brinker to hate Gene in no. any way, shape, or form. Like, they yeah. don't even really talk to one another, really. They live across the hall from each other. Ooh. And there's no reason for anybody to want to destroy Gene in this way. Yeah, because the character of Brinker is not shown to ever give a shit about Phineas or anybody other than himself and mm -hmm. his reputation and his, you know... It's amazing that Vidal apparently wasn't pissed at being portrayed this way yeah. in the book. I mean, I guess it, it, either it was, like, accurate or he was just, like, that good friends with Knowles or what. I would have fucking sued somebody for fucking yeah, portraying this is, me. This is libel. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's fighting a duel shit, man. It's like, you turn me into the most petulant fucking brat in American letters. What? 
What the hell? I know. What did I ever do to you, man? They have a fight in the smoking room. And so like there's an underground basement room where they all go to smoke cigarettes. And they have like a standoff in the smoking room. And then the next thing you know, Gene is basically being dragged to the Hague or like the Exeter version of it in order with like a prosecutor who is intent on like you will be given a fair trial and then shot. Like essentially is the motivation behind Brinker. Yeah. It's wild. It's absolutely... And Gene shows no, like, nervousness throughout this entire thing. He's just like, oh, another obstacle between me and my sinecure and yes. my anemic wife. It's so And my bizarre. loveless marriage. Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> he, he has absolutely no doubt that he's going to graduate and then just, like, go on to the war. There, There's no... And Finney has already sort of, like, semi-forgiven him at this point. Phineas forgives him at multiple points in the book. Yeah. And then out of nowhere throws himself down the stairs to commit suicide. Yeah, it's it's I it's absolutely it's, it's yeah, it's it's as you know, someone who tries to be a writer, if I ever did something like this, like I would never write something this like not it doesn't compute. A plus B, like, does not get you to C. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. There's I, a point where you've got to spend a draft revising some of these issues. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I guess the what really blows my mind is I had never read this book before. I thought I had. And it turns out that my I have a twin brother and he had read this in high school and like had just been talking about it. And at some point I recall the the discussion of like, can you actually die from a broken bone happening? Because it doesn't seem like you can. And so basically they go to reset Finney's broken leg and the doctor is absolutely certain that, uh, you know, a piece of bone marrow has gotten loose from his broken leg, went to his heart and killed him while he's at like the school nurse. And the way it's the news is delivered to Gene is like the most wonderfully heartless mid-century thing I've ever read. Well, you know what it brought to mind for me was the scene in the room where the, the 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 female lead's mother sits her down and says, the doctor, the results came back from the doctor. I definitely have breast cancer, and then it's never referred to again the whole rest of the book. Um, I have the passage in front of me. It goes, Doctor Stanpole sat down next to me and put his capable-looking hand on my leg. There is something I think boys of your generation are going to see a lot of. He said quietly, and I'll have to tell you about it now. Your friend is dead. That's it. That's how the news is delivered. Just, just your friend's <laughs> yeah. dead. Have a good one. And then like put on the fedora, throw the trench coat over your arm and like walk away whistling. Like that's how it's delivered. And and, gee, yeah. and the book literally goes on for like maybe 10 more pages after that. There's no grappling with Finney's oh. death. Gene just is like, ah, shit, this is war, you know, and that that's it. That's the book and scene clapper. That's like, it. Well, I guess this is the first of many deaths that I will experience mm-hmm. in my glorious military career in World War II. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's insufferable. And, and I guess let's segue just away from the fact that they don't handle death in any sort of meaningful fashion. They don't handle, um, you know, 
competition between adolescent boys in any meaningful fashion. They don't grapple the threat of being sent off to war in any meaningful fashion. And then they don't settle the obvious eroticism between Finney and Jean in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. This is the elephant in the room. I had I saw a quote from because when I was reading the book, I was like I couldn't remember whether I had ever because I didn't really know any biographical information about Knowles because I read yeah. the book in seventh grade and forgot about it. And I remember the homoeroticism in the book being a big topic of discussion among myself and my New York City public school classmates. So as you can imagine, this was, you know, like not the not the most woke conversation no, obviously not. That, that that you've ever had. Um and so I was reading the book from the perspective of, you know, being quite a bit older mm-hmm. and myself having come to grips with my own sexuality and having no small, you know, like amount of experience with queer male sexuality, you know, from a first uh, first person perspective. Yeah. And reading this book and just, and, and I think it got up to like page two. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Whoa. the levels of gay yeah. are in the red. Mm-hmm. And the Geiger counter is about to melt down. It's off the charts. I think it honestly, while, while I was reading astonishing this. Astonishing how gay at yeah. some point, I scrawled in the notes, this is the gayest book I've ever read. And and it, it really is. And so I looked up to his, like, I think if you go back in my Google search history, there are, like, a couple variants of, was John Knowles gay? Yeah. Um, and then in the course of that search, when I finally found what I was looking for, he himself denied that there was any homoeroticism in the book yes, and said something to the effect of, if there, if there was any if there was any homoeroticism between these two characters, I would have put it in the book. Which leads me to I, I mean, it's a shame that he you know died eighteen years ago because I would want to go and ask him like, do you want to revise that statement? Fuck? Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? You wrote something that's like, I, I, like. I, I, it's, it's <laughs> off I just lost the, my capacity like, for verbal speech. It's like, just like how am, can you look at this book? Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't identify as LGBT, but obviously, like, went to a super liberal college, read a lot of queer, you know, texts and things like that. It is off the chart. It is not even subtle with the sexual tension between the boys and not just Gene and Finney. Like, off the charts. Like levels it's like of he gives him like loving glances. He sighs over his beauty. He talks about how hot he is with his shirt off. It's like you know, and yeah. and Gene at multiple points even talks about his other friends' physicality. Like at some point, he says like the main thing that I ever noticed about Brinker is the fact that he has a like a voluptuous ass. And you're just like, that's not something most people write in 1959. Like between two young boys that's just out that's just off the charts level of gay and then for you know or at least just sexual between boys we won't necessarily say you know whatever but like it, it's just unbelievably sexual between a bunch of teenage boys especially for 1959 yeah i mean and it borders on the pornographic really i mean it, it, to circle back to what i was talking about like when we read this in seventh grade like, we got through about, like, I think two or three chapters in the book before, like, uh, 
so, some kid in the class just out of frustration and keep in mind this is a class full of 12 year olds yeah exactly like this kid just like in the middle of the discussion just like slammed his book on the desk and he's like look why don't they just be gay yes <laughs> and, 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 and that's and, like and not even derogatory so it's just frustrated like our sis, our teacher got so pissed at him and started yelling. But it's like then the whole class was like, "No, listen. Why do we have to pretend that this isn't you know like what this book is? You're having us read a gay book about gay boys who are in complete denial about being gay. Why can't they just be gay?" Yeah, and that's a legitimate question to ask a literature teacher. Like especially if you're in your formative years of reading literature and you're just like the yeah. subtext is not even subtext. It is text. They are like sharing yeah. clothing when they miss each other. This is like super gay and for your literature teacher to be like no it's not like that's what's wrong with english class kids like you yeah. have to acknowledge you it. have to be able to you have to be able to acknowledge reality in the class whether or not your personal beliefs on the subject it's like all right you know you can you're allowed to be wrong about shit it's the united states of america you yeah know, you, like you know if you, i have to read you to hold certain opinions about this but you have to be able to facilitate a discussion about blatantly obvious objective reality. And if, and if you're making yeah. like 12 and 13 year old kids read Huck Finn and say like the N word in class, cause I distinctly remember having to do that in my suburban shitty ass English classes. Like you have to be able to acknowledge the fact that like in 1959, this is a gay book, but they weren't allowed to be explicit about it. And they, he's toeing the line here and they weren't allowed to be gay for a million reasons. And however you feel about it, that is the text of this book. Well, and it's also the thing that really surprised me reading that he was like, you know, adamantly straight and also adamant that there wasn't any, mm -hmm. that, you know, that people who were reading homoeroticism into the book were, you know, just projecting their own whatever onto it. He's open about the fact that one of the characters is based on Gore Vidal. Exactly. Gore Vidal admits that the character is based on him and is sort of proud of it and, you know, calls Knowles a friend. Uh, I, I don't want to like shatter anybody's reality about this, but you know, we have some news for you well, about Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal could be a little gay on days of the week that ended in Y. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I I. It's like that great line in, in the Loop where James Gandolfini's like, "Gore's gay? I didn't know that. I've been saying it for all." You know, it's like, yeah. it's like it, it's like a joke. You know, that Gandolfini's general character doesn't know that Gore Vidal was gay. <laughs> Um, and it's like, I mean, you know, and the other thing about this is like, it does, it, it, it may sound as though to somebody listening to this who hasn't read the book, it, it may sound like we're just like fixated on this one reading that, you know, we both happen to share, but, and we're just harping on it to the exclusion of other readings of this text. I really don't know if there's any other way to read this text than these motherfuckers are just like the biggest closet cases in the world. I don't think there is. I sincerely don't yeah. think there is. If like the book is like gets banned from reading lists and it's not because they don't like 
you know, football. It's they don't like the fact that these boys are very clearly in some sort of sexualized relationship. There is no other way to read this book. It's like it's like reading The Sun Also Rises and then being like, oh no, the main character didn't lose his dick in the war. He just has a limp. No, there's no mm. other way to read this. It is simply the text that they cannot say like out yeah. right. It's like it's it, it, the equivalent would be if tender is the night denied that mental illness existed. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like, or I mean, you know, catcher in the rye. If you want another example, of, like the same thing, you know, or like, I mean, if Moby Dick posited that whales didn't exist. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or like, sh- you know, it's yeah, like- <laughs> streetcar named Desire. No, this is a perfectly normal and healthy relationship between a married couple. No, no, oh, yeah. it's no an ideal way vision she- of the utopian exactly. world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. there's no other way to read this and to <clears throat> now sort of read this when we have expl- explicitly, not meaning like graphic, but like explicitly gay YA texts now that we do in, thank Mm -hmm. God, you know, 30 years after or 20 years after I read books like this, like, thank goodness kids are allowed to say, like, my boyfriend, you know, whatever. It's fantastic that we have that now explicitly in YA texts. I, it bothers the living shit out of me that this is still probably taught in high schools as, you know, just a boys being boys sort of text because it isn't. And how could you ever oh, yeah. read this outside the, in conjunction with an explicitly gay, like YA text? You can't. Yeah. Cause when I, I was tweeting, uh, like when I, when I was started rereading it for preparing for the, for the podcast, and I, I got about like, you know, 20 pages in and I just like fired off, just like a letting off some steam tweet about yeah. just, like, God, this fucking book fucking sucks so much, you know, it's so fucking and awful. then people, it, enough people were replying to it. And it was like some of like my younger followers, you know, like mm-hmm. still like in their early mid twenties were like replying to it and being like, yeah, we had to read this shit in high school too. And I was like, you people, and, and they were young enough that quote-unquote reading it in high school meant that they were reading it like five or six years ago i know and it's like that kind of threw me for a second i was like man this because it's like i'm so in principle i didn't have better options (laughs) oh yeah but like in principle and in general i'm all for it's like yeah you know it's like i believe in you know purity of artistic expression and, and you know like Unless something is just so fucking awful that it has no redeeming qualities whatsoever, like, you know, you shouldn't cancel art, maybe cancel an individual artist, but, you know, their their work still has mm-hmm. some sort of merit, warrant study and everything like that. We're getting to a point where there is no reason whatsoever to ponder the world that a separate piece is about, because, mm-hmm. first of all, there are better texts to examine that world of American aristocracy. I completely agree. Uh, there are ones that actually have some sort of perspective on it and contextualize it in terms of uh, the continuum of history and it's just sycophantic relationship with Anglophilia and, uh, and you know, the, this particular book, it's just, it just fucking sucks. It's like, it's the only, like, that's the end point that I can, you know, it's like I can 
look at certain aspects of it, unpack them, discuss them, you know, sort of toss them around a little bit. But the end point of every single one of those contemplations is this book fucking sucks. Yes, this book is archaic and it should not be taught anymore. Or and if it it is to, if it is taught, it has to be As taught a cautionary in, tale. Yeah. Exactly in conjunction with yeah. something of saying like, look at how much a separate piece is fucking garbage compared to what we can now openly say and describe today. You have to teach it I mean, in conjunction with something. You cannot just teach this as like a classic tale of American mid-century life. There's no fucking way. I would say, though, one place, if, if you know, we're doing the thing of, you know, it's like it's got to be taught somewhere. Yeah. Teach this book creative writing classes when you're teaching the students about like, all right, so now you know how to do all the stuff that we taught you in the previous semesters. All right, kids, you're getting ready to write your first novel. Mm -hmm. You're going to read this book. This is all the things that you're not supposed to do. Yes. This is That's like... the place where you should teach a separate piece because I'm all for keeping it as like a living text. And, you know, I don't think we should like, you know, ban it. No, ban no, it no, no. That's like ridiculous. Ban it shit. It's just, I mean, it's a piece of shit. <laughs> That's where its merit lies now. Yeah. You know how, like, for is, ages when you would yeah. take writing classes, they'd say, write what you know. Like, John Knowles and, like, Philip Roth took that entirely the wrong way. It doesn't mean just, like, vaguely disguise the shit that happened to you when you were in high school and act like it was a bloody fucking amazing adventure. Like, or your own, like, psychosexual, like, obsessions in the era of Philip Roth. Uh, someone I haven't tackled yeah. yet. Like, this is exactly what you shouldn't do when someone tells you write what you know. This is, like, case in point, do not write this book. Yeah, because, I mean, it's it can't be, like, they got to be clearer about the write what you know thing because it's like there are takes on that. There are, there are ways that you can spin that into, like, something productive for writers to do. What it does not mean is jerk off into a mirror. Yes. That's not what right what you know means. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like I guess, you know, we are on a podcast called Fuckboys of Literature and like most of the time this does devolve into like, what does fuckboy mean to you? And the frankly is like everybody <laughs> in this book is a fucking awful piece of garbage. They are self-centered, powerful by both society and in their own brains, and they just spend the time just abusing one another and if you've ever read the book like you don't need the breakdown of how every character in this book is a piece of garbage i mean because it's they, most of the most of the fuckboys in this particular book are different variations on the same theme yeah which is entitled uh aristocrat men case mm -hmm. of mid-century u.s mm-hmm and and all of the student characters are variations on that same theme and then they have the minor authority figures which are like the the hapless teachers at this school yes. who are like the worst disciplinarians i have i mean they just they, they're completely ineffectual the, the the young lords of industry just like run wild doing whatever the mm -hmm. fuck they want even though there are apparently these strict rules of conduct in the school never enforced oh and um, so gene goes into great detail about like he's he sweet talks every single teacher and like the substitute principal to the point where you're just like are the teachers sleeping with finney too like what the fuck is going on mm -hmm. here like what is the culture of this school i mean 
there is a place in the literary canon for the version of this book where everybody is actually in touch with their sexuality, and it's basically just like, you know, gay porn at Exeter. It's yeah, like basically. there's an audience for that. Yeah. Um, but it's like I, it's it maybe it's because I grew up in like a post-sexual revolution, uh, you know, world, and it was like, and I came up in like maybe the first generation of you know like. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll walk that back. I don't think yeah. that I was like the, the vanguard of anything. My generation is the vanguard of anything. But it's like guys my age were considerably more comfortable labeling themselves as bisexuals than queer men of previous yes. you know, generations. Mm-hmm. But it was still a thing where it's like, especially older gay men, would quibble with that with me and just be like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And it's like, no, nah, man, that's, I, I know, I know what's going on in my, in my own yeah, head. You know, yeah. It's like, I'm not lying to myself. So in that regard, like, I do think that like, I came of age in an era when like, you know, queer sexuality openly enough discussed that we're able to like parse layers and nuances of mm-hmm. it to that degree, which means that I came along, uh, uh, this is getting along with it, but I swear Uh, that it like my own understanding of sexuality comes from the world that I was born into which is a bit farther down the line of like acceptance and understanding than the world that a separate piece was set in right which was already in the past when it was written and it was written in a completely past era as well so I don't expect it to adhere to modern standards of shit. No. By no means. That would be an absolute mistake. It, it, you, you just, you can't approach art that way. It just, it, that's not the way that it works and it doesn't do anybody any good. But <laughs> good. I would like somebody in this fucking universe to have a scintilla of self-awareness about themselves. Because I would venture to yes. say that the majority of characters in this book are either gay or bi-curious. Mm-hmm. And none of them, not a single person in the book even mentions it. No. Most... And it's that's a problem because people were already doing this by, like, if, you know, it's like yeah. books were getting banned for portrayals of explicit, uh, you know, what they call explicit portrayals of homosexuality, like in the 50s. Yeah, that was they absolutely like, were. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like Knowles is like, well, I mean, this was like, you know, back in the dark ages when, you know, it's like if you even said the word gay, the you know police would come to your house. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that wasn't. Ah. Like <laughs> at the point that this book is taking place, not even when it was written, you know, or at least it was published in 59. Like you even knew that like Hollywood stars, you know, like their their relationships were fake and things like that. This is like well known at this point. This is not something that is entirely swept underneath the rug. And to the point that in the text, literally no one has a girlfriend. Yep. There's no, there is no mention of any of these 16 and 17 year old boys lusting after women. Ever. I would also like to point out, as an aside, while we're discussing this issue, one of the people who one of the characters in the book is based on 
was, at the time the novel was written, writing his own books explicitly dealing with male homosexuality. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like Knowles doesn't have the slightest excuse here with this. It's just – it's like you will tear your fucking hair out if you don't just, like, let yourself laugh it off when, when you're reading the book. It's like it's – to, it's the point where it's so bad that it's almost verges on being a lie. Yeah. Rather than a work of fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I cannot agree with you enough on that. Like, I you know it, it it's a it's a frustrating read as like a modern feminist, you know, uh, to like at you know to just look at it with your own modern lens while you're reading it, and you're just like, I can't believe this actually happened. But then it and has been celebrated for again like 50, 60 years. It's been on reading lists and bestseller lists, and it's mind-boggling to you as you're reading this just like as a modern human being. And then to when you actually realize that the text is as, you know, just unabashedly gay as it is, for it to get no mention and then to read that John Knowles basically went to his grave saying like, nah, you, it's, it's, oh, it was an inspired choice for the podcast because it's just so frustrating. Well, it's like, look, I knew that you had a podcast called Fuck Boys of Lit, and the first book that I think popped into my mind when I was thinking about, what is a Fuck Boy of Lit? Hmm. The first book that just, like, manifested itself in my consciousness in just, like, full concrete leadenness was this this pile of shit. It's garbage. It, 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 it's like the it, it's the epic poem of the American fuckboy. <laughs> oh my god! And, and and the the weirdest part about it is like I just did an episode on David Foster Wallace and the delicateness with which you have to discuss him and how he related to other people and how he related right. to you know just like just culture you have to be very precise with this book you can literally just pick it up and scream like an old man on the sidewalk of just being like you see this this is shit this is just shit i cannot believe i've read this i can't believe everyone i know has read this it's just crap and it's probably sort of like a lot less you know like stressful i have to analyze than dfw who i personally like i mean my views on him are nuanced and occasionally contradictory. It's just he's the kind of guy that, you know, that that shit happens. Some guys, it's, it's just not simple. Yeah, but, exactly. But um, this, this is very clear I, mean, I don't want to get into that because that was that episode. And, yeah. You know, it's like, I don't want to, you know, it's like, well, here are my opinions on that, you know, because I don't want to become a fuckboy of living. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a delicate dance, let me tell you, because sometimes you just really want to. You Sometimes you really just want to let it go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, it's like, you know, as a film critic, I mean, there are certain films that are like that, too. It's like, it, it's like, you would think it would be simple. People have, like, strong opinions one way or the other, but it's like you have to grapple with various nuances and different valences of their work. And, you know, it's like they're different readings. The, the people's, you know, different background could lead them to have a completely different perspective on the work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost refreshing to have something where it's like there is a unit, a unified, like you know, just, just singular, the hum of distaste, where you can just like stomp the shit at it and just be like, 
oh, this is like it, which is something just uniformly sucks and you can just, like, you know. It's cathartic. Oh, breath of fresh air. It's just, yeah. It's temptation to be like, this thing that I don't like is emblematic of everything wrong with everything. This book that I don't like really is emblematic of what's wrong with a lot of things. <laughs> it really in both is. Literature, the way literature is taught, American culture, just like mm-hmm. it, it, it's like a. Yeah, just the definition and expectations so of greatness, yeah, yeah. and just the 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 sheer worship of whiteness and monetary power and elitism and yeah. closed doors and gated communities and just it's everything that has turned into a cancer from the mid-century of you know the 1900s till now that has been fetishized and obsessed over to the point that it is calcified and we now have like a kidney stone of awful and it's this book oh my gosh all (laughs) right so let's you know what now that we have unequivocally stated how we feel about this how can our listeners keep in touch with you and your work? We'll start to wrap this up a little. Uh, I, I post rather frequently on a website called twitter.com, Do uh, where my handle is at bybos, B-Y-B-O-W-E-S. Uh, it is a pun. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, it's more or less like where, the, where my writing is more or less concentrated is at my personal website, bydannybows.com, B-Y-D-A-N-N-Y. B-O-W-E-S dot com. Um, and that's about all that I can publicly say now, although, you know, it's like I've got some long-term uh, film projects in the works, so maybe we get to see uh, oh, some of my work. Uh, but, I mean, nothing is certain as of yet, so I can't, uh, you know, it's be like, you know, this is when. Yeah, this, exactly. I don't know, but at some point, at some point. <laughs> Such is the uh, way of being a working artsy-fartsy person in this world. Yeah. Being somebody who wants to make movies who doesn't have any money. Yeah. Let me tell you, kids, it's fun. It's stressful <laughs> as hell. Not being rich when you want to make films is the <laughs> best. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe yeah. make fun, make friends with some of these Exeter kids if they're dumb enough and gullible enough. You too can have some of their money in the future. Yeah, if none of them, if none of them have listened to this podcast, exactly. Hear me in pain. It's like, let's turn the rich into soil. And it's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to invest in your. And open up your <laughs> checkbook, kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much. So we'll have updates for Danny's work in the future, hopefully knocking on all wood, wooden surfaces in our, in our proximity. And as always, you can follow Fuckboys of Lit, that's B-O-I-S, on Twitter or Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes under the name F-B-O-L, because tech boys are fuckboys, and they don't like that word. We're on YouTube under Fuckboys of Literature 2, and on Ko-Fi, or Coffee, however you want to pronounce it, slash F-B-O-L pod. Any donations will be made to use to pay producers, graphic artists, bookers, and anyone else that will help this podcast grow. Be sure to reach out with any questions, comments, or suggestions. We love hearing from you. That's our show for this week. I'm Emily Edwards, and have a good one. Yeah, like everybody with their George Plimpton accents.